0: Today we're featuring Craig Venter, a world-renowned biotechnologist known for his groundbreaking contributions to genomics. He had a pivotal role in leading the first draft sequence of the human genome and assembling the pioneering team that achieved the transfection of a cell with a synthetic chromosome later in life he and his research team created the world's first synthetic organism from scratch demonstrating the potential of synthetic biology to engineer life at the molecular level craig's a leading figure he's hilarious unfettered unshackled and unafraid you'll hear all of that in this episode and find out why he was among time magazine's 100 most influential people in the world not once but twice maybe on another planet where life already exists. So without further ado, we welcome a lively episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. My friend, Craig Venter, live, recorded at UCSD this past fall.
1: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors now.
0: Welcome everybody to what promises to be an exciting and lively, emphasis on lively, episode of the Into the Impossible podcast with none other than Craig Venter of many different fames but we're going to talk about a couple of them in particular including mapping the human genome. Craig is local here in La Jolla. He has his institute named after him down the down the road from our campus and he's graciously agreed to spend some time with me. I'm going to run out of time before I run out of questions Craig. Mm. Thank you so much for visiting.
1: My pleasure to be here.
0: And you're a proud alumni son of San Diego UCSD. And we're going to talk a little bit about how the campus has changed yeah. a, a little bit. But sitting in that chair a couple of months back was uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, who also goes by his middle name only as Stan. Uh, I don't know what it is with you famous, super famous, brilliant, uh, creative types. So today we're going to talk about a variety of subjects, including your recent book, The Voyage of Sorcerer 2. We're gonna talk about what happened to you on Sorcerer One, which is foreshadowing. (laughs) But first we're gonna start with a very simple, easy question, Craig, and that is, the one posed by Erwin Schrödinger in the 50s in a monograph, a very slim monograph. And that question was, what is life?
1: Well, it's a book I recommend that every scientist read at least once. I've read it a few times. A few years back, I was asked to give uh, the only time someone was asked to give the Schrodinger lecture other than Schrodinger in the same uh, hall, under the same circumstances, it was, it was really an amazing experience. And because we've designed the first living cell, uh, that didn't happen in nature, people assume that I can answer that question. But uh, he tried to define it in physical terms and uh, you know thought about things about the genetic code long before Watson and Crick. And while everybody was sh- sure that it was proteins, you know, he said it could be as simple as uh, the Morse code. Crystal uh, and large. I was talking to uh, uh, Francis Crick about that. He goes, well, that was obvious to everybody. He was very d- dismissive of, you know, that, that was hardly a unique notion, other than from protein chemists who uh, still refused to give Avery the Nobel Prize for proving that DNA was the genetic material. Cells are very dynamic changing second to second. But one thing is fundamental to all life, and that's the genetic code. If you take the genetic code out of any cell, any species, the cell dies very rapidly, the species dies. That's why we're so susceptible to radiation poisoning. It basically blows apart uh, the DNA structure, and you can't uh, continue to produce proteins and live. So some proteins, have a half-life of seconds, some minutes, some hours, but they're not permanent structures. Mm. So every cell on our body is second to second constantly being rebuilt. Mm. So the genetic code is being read, uh, translated, and proteins produced on a constant basis. It's even coded in the protein how long they'll live and their degradation rate. So it's a constant synthesis degradation, taking out the garbage. And so without the fundamental information molecule, there is no life. Mm. That's a good fundamental start. Mm -hmm. Cells, you know, have to defy entropy. They have to keep existing by creating energy. They take things from the environment. Uh, We have You know, hundreds of ways that different cells make energy and the forms of life vary from things that live at 135 degrees centigrade down to sub-zero temperatures. History of biology is, it got defined in a human-centric point of view, so, you know, we were the standard, so nothing could live out of 37 degrees and we were the center of the universe. We're not the center of biology. We may be the center of trying to understand and interpret biology, uh, but we're the minor species on the planet. Um, So uh, key proteins in the membrane pump nutrients in, pump waste molecules out, but it's a dynamic system that, in my view, kind of spontaneously happens.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we're trying to see right now if we can get it to happen spontaneously. When we made the synthetic cell, we made a synth- we wrote the genetic code, and we developed a transplantation system where we could put that chromosome in a recipient cell that could read that code, and mm. it read that code, and then totally transformed that cell into what was defined by that code. Mm. So you change the genetic code, you convert one species into another. We're trying to now see if we can do that in a cell-free system uh, to get spontaneous formation by having all the components together. So. Uh, that's a long-winded way of saying we can't define life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I've had on multiple people, including uh, Carl Zimmer, who from the New York Times and the other, other venues. I'm sure you've interacted with. I've had on many, many, you know, people discussing the origin of life, shadow biospheres, yeah. and everything, but never anyone who's claimed to create life. And it reminds me of this joke, which you've probably heard before. But you know, a group of scientists from JCVI, you know, go up to uh, heaven and they say, "God, guess what? We've created life. We've created life in the in the lab." Uh, we can make a man out of dirt, and God says, "Oh yeah, well, let, let me see you. Let me see you do that. That's pretty impressive." And so the scientists uh, over there, they go outside, they scoop up some dirt, and God says, "Hold on a second, get your own dirt." Yeah, <laughs> meaning that you know you're starting from from some base material. Now, yep. Obviously, in the origin of life studies. Again, there's almost no real well-defined kind of uh, uh, pathway or, or definition even of how the origin of life came to be. We'll talk about my favorite way, which only explains how life on Earth got started. It's called panspermia. We'll talk about that in a minute because yep. uh, I'm very interested in that and your thoughts on that and aliens and all sorts of cool, fun stuff. But the synthetic life, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's rare and. A career that you have one ma- big hit i mean you've had hit after hit after hit. talk about what was the genesis of that were you looking was there a sophomore slump fear that how do i top <laughs> mapping there uh-huh. first of all you weren't you didn't only map the human genome you had mapped you made the first complete genome map of what's an interest um, homophilus, homophilus. Uh, uh, yeah uh, that which, was in
1: 1995 so five years almost 30 years
0: genome. ago it's coming up on the 30th anniversary
1: and that developed the tools that made me know that we had a new way to do the human genome. It was new mathematical algorithms mm-hmm. for assembling the genetic code from the sequences that we'd get.
0: If we wanted to do the if you started from scratch and and you know, we took you away, we put you on an island, you know, with with, with some collaborators, brilliant people, computers, centrifuges, PCR, et cetera, mm-hmm. how fast could you do it today?
1: So And how cheap could you do it? Yeah. It took us 10 years. Writing the genetic code is very complex. The machines are slow. We had to develop error, they're not accurate, so we had to develop error correction uh, methods. You can only make pieces so, so large in size, and so we had to make multiple of those and find ways to link them together. As you make larger pieces of DNA, it gets very brittle, so you can't pipette it or do normal things. So we had to take new te- develop new techniques of putting it in gels electronically and moving it around in the gels. So everything we did we had to develop from scratch to be able to do. But the rate of synthesis it was very slow. Mm. And the other problem was in the final minimal cell about a quarter of the genes are of unknown function. Hmm. They're essential for life. You take one of them out, the cell dies. This isn't junk DNA, what they it, call the, junk, the, Tell it, the, it, yeah. the only junk DNA is in my colleagues' brains. <laughs> and that's one of my pet peeves. People come up with these overly simplistic, basically stupid ideas, you know, that the part doesn't code for proteins must be junk. Right. And so. I offered several of those people to uh, surgically remove their junk DNA and see how long they lived, but uh, <laughs> there, were, there were no volunteers. But um, th- the problem was we tried to de- design life on first principles based on what we thought we knew about biology, and it proved to be impossible. Mm-hmm. So the reason it took so long, in part from the slow methods for synthesis, it was, became trial and error we had to add genes back, then see how what of those we could remove until we could get a living cell. Mm-hmm. So we'd add back a bunch and then we'd get life. And then we worked out, you know, we can remove some of those. We had methods for knocking out genes so we could tell which ones were essential and which ones weren't. Mm-hmm. But so it was basically a trial and error process. And I think the biggest finding and it's similar to what we found with the ocean microbiome is science reaches plateaus of knowledge and the geniuses in the field sort of trying to define things as though we know everything. Mm I mean, I'm sure it's happened in your field multiple times. So protein chemists thought we knew all the protein folds, we knew all the protein families. It was gonna be hard to ever discover anything new in the ocean. Just
0: stamp collecting. In the ocean,
1: (laughs) you know, they thought there was only a handful of different microbes. And like proving junk DNA is not junk. Instead of that being a major finding, you're, you're just proving some idiot's stupid statement Calling it junk DNA in the first place. <laughs> the Challenger expedition that we followed it was from the 1870s. It was the first true scientific expedition in the oceans. Was sending a dredge down every 200 miles to see what was on the bottom of the ocean, and again, the brilliant Sayers at the time said there couldn't possibly be any life below 1,800 feet. Mm. You know, we're, arbitrary, and, and so. When they discovered life at every depth, including they discovered the Mariana Trench and life at the bottom Smokers. of everything, uh, so it, it was disproving again an idiot notion. You know, I mean, there's there's discovery science. We showed discovery science is not dead by you can go out, ask questions, and make more discoveries. Science is limited more by this dogma that gets set up of. Inane ideas Mm -hmm. that if people really thought about it, you know, they wouldn't come up with them. You know, before we sequenced the human genome, people were arguing that there were hundreds of thousands of human genes because there had to be a gene for each trait and function. I mean, it just shows how little was even fundamentally understood about what a gene does, what a protein does. Uh, and that it wasn't combinations of effects. So the biggest finding is we found twenty thousand some odd genes instead of hundreds of thousands. It, but it was only a surprise because of the silly notions that were out there. If they weren't there, it would have been oh yeah that sounds, makes sense. You know, uh, twenty thousand combinatorial is a huge number.
0: Yeah. When we think about the unsolved problems in in physics, there's the classic notions of of these grand kind of prizes and so forth that people will stake their whole lives and careers on. Famous one, theory of everything. Can we find a single equation that's maybe one inch long that you could write uh, that Einstein was unable to do? And of course, going back to Schrodinger, Schrodinger came up with this famous paradox of the cat, Schrodinger's cat, the superposition of living in dead states. And that was meant to to, to sort of reveal and, and crystallize what he thought of as a paradox in the interpretations of quantum mechanics. Mm. Are there similar problems? In other words, like you know, he would say things and Einstein would retort back, you know, does the moon exist when I don't look at it? And all <laughs> sorts of, God doesn't play dice, obviously is a famous one. Are there interpretations of biology, in other words, and it's not clear that there are that we know that there are only four fundamental forces of physics: the strong and weak force, electromagnetic force and of course, gravity. There could be other forces, sometimes they're called fifth forces, but we can't rule them out. And it's sort of an interpretative or philosophical question. Are there philosophies of biology in terms of interpretations? Like, could there be genes that we don't know what they express or what they produce because we're looking at them through how humans are currently? You know, Could there be something like some sixth sense that humans have, like polarization of light? You know, are there genes that would trace you know, the, the sensitivity of polarization in certain individuals Uh, that we just don't know about because maybe we only discovered polarized light relatively recently. It's a long-winded way of asking, are there uh, issues in the interpretation of genetics in the human genome?
1: Well, totally. Even starting back, as you said, with the origin of life, the assumption that exists everywhere in biology is that everything gets back to a common origin. That means if there was panspermia, there was only one event and everything. in in the biosphere came from that one event. I've always just fundamentally thought that was bull. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the fundamental chemicals of life are found universally. They're they're found on every asteroid that things are measured on. Uh, You know, in my view is every place you have the same fundamental components we will fundamentally get life. You know, my bumper sticker says life happens. (laughs) And so I think there were thousands, maybe millions of origins. Mm. There's competition for these, but to assume there was a singularity event uh, I think is just extremely naive. And what
0: what is the most plausible in terms of the extant versions of of
1: not just origin of life on Earth, which, I, which is a
0: huge problem to solve, and and we have Miller-Urey is on our campus, a literally a uh, foundational experiment, which is you know not c- not currently accepted as I understand it as representative of the oxidizing and reducing conditions of the early atmosphere.
1: It's a cool experiment. It's though. a very cool
0: experiment, yeah. and that's su- super fun to to talk about. But that would only, and again. Forgive me, when I used to do biology experiments in high school, Craig, uh, you know, we'd get a frog and we'd have to dissect it. And my frog would like not even die. Like I, I was horrible in biology. So yeah. so I know almost nothing about it, but that would only solve life origins on earth. But what is a plausible in your idea set of ideas for origin of life in the universe as a whole?
1: So in my second book, it's called Life at the Speed of Light. And it's based on the one invention I'm proud of. It's, it's a biological teleporter. It's called a digital biological converter. It was based on the notion of that we can send the genetic code through the internet, through electromagnetic waves, any combination of things, regenerate that code and regenerate life. And the notion was we can send a, a DNA sequencer smaller than this coffee cup to Mars or other places And instead of sending up a $5 billion spaceship to fly back a sample taken from the subsurface of Mars, where you send a sequencer, sequence what's there, send the digital information back, and we can recreate the Martians easily here in in a laboratory Mm -hmm. uh, using the tools of synthetic biology. So it's not the Star Trek teleporter. It's sending uh, the digital information for life but because that codes for everything, it can be recapitulated. Mm -hmm. My understanding is we exchange about 100 kilograms of material between Earth and Mars annually. That's right. So various calculations, you can't take a shovel of uh, Earth soil without having Martian soil in it. And so that means when the oceans existed on Mars and, you know, some evidence as they still do on the sharp surface that we will either still find living organisms and they'll very much resemble uh, what we have here.
0: That's a, that's a, a, ter- a meteorite found uh, in Argentina. But behind oh. you somewhere else over there, I've got a sample of a lunar meteorite, okay. which obviously hit the moon. And that's your it, gift, by the way. It came here. Oh, and it came fantastic. here. So the converse is also yeah. true. We're exchanging yes. medium yes. with with Mars.
1: So, When life is discovered on Mars, it will resemble life uh, that we discovered uh, uh, in the ocean voyage. And microbial life and viral life will, in my view, be ubiquitous in the universe. Mm. Now, there's limits. We can't go right now above 135 degrees centigrade, Mm -hmm. but we wouldn't last too long at that temperature, Mm -hmm. personally. And uh, we have microbes that live in very high doses of radiation, dinococcus radiodurans. Uh, The space station uh, was coated in part with that to see how long it would survive, and survived a long time. (laughs) In fact, one of the stories that I tell that uh, got the NASA director uh, very annoyed with me, uh, I said the outside of the space station is covered with and it literally was because early on they just pumped out all the human waste Mm -hmm. uh, outside and a lot of it stuck to the outside of the space station now they pack it into stainless steel containers and launch it back into the earth's atmosphere so I, I tell people to be very careful when they wish upon a shooting star <laughs> shooting that, shit. that 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 may be uh, uh shooting shit. may be the wrong one so life will live <laughs> in space it'll live on the surface of these things it will live in nuclear reactors and geysers
0: uh, yeah. and so
1: mm-hmm. trying to extrapolate from human biology we'd say well of course it can't exist in other conditions mm. the only reason I'd like to live a long time would be to see it proven that it is ubiquitous and uh, is everywhere we look.
0: Hey there, fellow voyagers into the impossible. It is I, your fearless host, Professor Brian Keating, here with a microscopically tiny request before we go back to exploring the potential of biotechnology and its ethical implications, and that's to make sure that you're all subscribed to the podcast. I did some research and number crunching of my own and found out that only 18% of you are actually subscribed to the channel of all those that watch it. And to make matters even worse, only 8% have notifications turned on. You're missing out on so much great, amazing, and free content. So make sure you like, subscribe, and turn on notifications. I know you hear it from every single YouTuber on earth, but to get the greatest possible guest on this show, I really rely on that and it will help me help you. So do it. Do it now before you forget. It just takes one little push now back to the episode. So the thought comes to me, you know, when I read life at the speed of light that, you know, that does involve a, a much slower process than the speed of light to transport the 3d printer, the sequencer, etc.
1: Well, but, you have to get those there, but the data can come back at right. the speed of light.
0: So I guess the obvious implication that I'm kind of drawing from this is that, well, maybe there were other civilizations and species and so forth that created some kind of sequencer, which we call DNA, Mm -hmm. and that produced us. What are your thoughts about, uh, it seems that DNA, which you're, you know, at least as as, as big an expert as exists on the planet today, that it could be the most, you know, kind of basic evidence for extraterrestrial, not only existence, but intelligence. Um, mm. am I like off here? I mean, it's durable. It's like, I, I've heard of this long now. Have you heard of the long now yeah. foundation? Yeah. So they're trying to build a 10,000 year clock. Yeah. like Stuart yeah. Brand and Kevin yeah. Ke- uh, Kelly. No. So 10,000 years is child's play That's compared right. to how long DNA is lost. So what are your thoughts about that as a signature of ETI?
1: When my, uh, I was the first human genome sequenced. And when that sequence was finished to show people they should not be afraid of their own sequence, uh, it was put on the internet. It's been you know broadcast. So um, my my genome's been broadcast into space now for 25 years. So you know (laughs) it it, it, it may come back and you know a, a. a troop of Craig Ventures may come back and land here because it can be recreated from the uh, sequence, um, you know. But it, it's like human cloning—you don't get the same answer every time, other than in the uh, the basic structural and functional components. We're, we're still plastic individuals and can be modified. But and we're sending data into space constantly. Uh, people could be sending it to us, and we're we're not yet knowing how to interpret those signals that are coming in
0: and the fact that it lasts so long and you know has this durability and resiliency is just is just so striking and i don't think there's anything that's creatable in a lab that has any you know that you can create or that has been discovered that has the durability of something like that that's capable being produced by a mind by an intelligence Mm -hmm. source Now, obviously, that brings up notions of of all sorts of things, like if you were to construct the most likely evidence of life traversing the universe, it would be something that traverses at the speed of light, given the vast distances, which kind of brings me to my next question, which is about artificial life forms, not the kind that you synthesized, Mm -hmm. but necessarily artificial life, artificial intelligence and the question i have is is really would it make sense to teleport you know even these you know 3d printers or, or even the code which still has to rely on matter which cannot travel at the speed of light if it has mass versus pure information so um, but
1: that's what dna sequences it's pure information right and so that could be sent anywhere and certainly short distances mm-hmm. it would be the fastest way to get anything back from mars mm-hmm. or Europa, anyplace Mm -hmm. else, it makes it feasible to do that instead of waiting for a round trip of uh, physical material. Right, It's the fundamental chemical components we we just talked about are basically ubiquitous every place somebody looks. So having DNA form, RNA form is extremely likely and uh, once it forms it can accidentally code for something or it can very specifically code for something. So in the first synthetic genome we created a second code. It was uh, uh, based on Isaac Asimov's uh, uh, rules of robotics. We decided being the first one to make a synthetic uh, organism uh, that it should be watermarked uh, to clearly distinguish it as a human-made organism. Deep fake. Versus, <laughs> yeah. otherwise it could really confuse everybody doing evolutionary studies, for example. So we created a code, you know, people have used ASCII code, but th- th- that creates problems. So we created a unique code that puts very frequent stop codons in, because for example, we could write your name in the genetic code with this code, mm-hmm. But without the stop codons, that could lead to a new protein, a toxin, something of very unintended consequences.
0: What? What is, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what would be the likelihood of that? It seems to me if I go into my friend's Tesla and I, you know, I start to, you know, play around with the code. Almost anything I enter into it is gonna destroy. <laughs> it's it's less likely that it's gonna produce, you know, something new and functional, or, or just an old fashioned Dodge, you know, Wrangler or Jeep Wrangler, <laughs> go in there with a hammer and start playing around. More than likely, unless you know, do something cosmetically, you're gonna make it irreparable and possibly non-functional so is that I appreciate the ethical concerns but is that really probabilistically you know uh, likely I
1: I, I think there's a high probability of that you know the uh, all the microbes in the environment are basically chemical warfare with each other that's how we're discovering so many new antibiotics So they they create antibiotics to uh, deal with these chemicals. They're randomly evolved from just, you know, the the biggest drivers of evolution in the ocean are UV light and oxygen. And that's why there's such a high rate of mutagenesis. When you're doing this experiment, a hundred billion times, (laughs) anything's possible.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So that brings me to, you know, some of the questions that, that naturally spring to mind. I mean, the, the, the potential for, for novel uses of it, incredible potential for, you know, we just endured this, you know, three-year pandemic. Right. So what are some of the concerns that you have beyond, beyond the, you know, it could do something unintended. What about the intentional misuse of this technology?
1: So it's one of the concerns that. That we had any virus, any bacteria that's been sequenced, any pathogen we could readily reproduce. I think uh, my friends in China don't like me to say this, but I think Occam's Razor says you have to prove that COVID wasn't a lab-made uh, pathogen. Yeah. Um, you know, could have come out of the market, but three people got sick there. They could have gone to the market. So mm-hmm. you know, they their alternate hypotheses aren't impossible. Right. Or could they have, could have brought it to it the market. <laughs> could have, it could have come from an animal, uh, but uh, NIH, under Francis Collins' direction, was funding gain-of-function research in this lab in China that we had no control over. I mean, it was, it, it's the most unethical, thoughtless idea that I, mean, I can imagine. I'm of, sorry to interrupt, but I have
0: to just get why was it done in China, right? Because it couldn't, they couldn't legally get it to be done here, correct? They couldn't do gain of function research. It was forbidden. They could
1: definitely do it at CDC and the spacesuit lab where we grow Leveled. smallpox and uh-huh. everything else. And so doing it in a lab where you have no control of the use or the outcome. Or the processes, the the fact that three people got sick from the research there yeah. says something wasn't being done right. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, in the, in the P four facility at CDC, they grow the worst pathogens in the planet, and we sequenced the smallpox genome as part of an international treaty. Uh, it was growing up in the spacesuit lab, and they would only send us about a third of the genome at a time to sequence, so we would never have the whole thing, but. Uh, uh, it would be easy to recreate just from the genome sequence now. Mm-hmm. So we do have to be concerned with that. Um, people created the notion of designing new pathogens. That's much more difficult, in part because we know so little about biology. I mean, the, the, the fact that we couldn't even design a living cell because of all the unknown uh, functions out there, essential for life, I mean, nobody would have predicted that. Not a single person in biology would have predicted what we found. That's amazing. And it just shows we're missing at least a third to half of all biological knowledge mm. uh, yet to be discovered. Gain of function is changing one or two genes to try and make things worse. Well, short- not
0: necessarily. Sorry to interrupt <laughs> again, but but you know, when I had COVID, I only had, I I understand you had a terrible experience with COVID, but I had a benign, relatively benign. In fact, I lost ten. I dropped. I was joke. I dropped five pounds oh. from my double chin to my stomach. No, oh. I I lost weight. You know, oh. I didn't have smell and taste. And, you know, it's been more or less permanent. Yeah, but imagine and God forbid, I'm not suggesting, oh, it was really good because Brian Keating lost five pounds, Uh, there's more to come. Right. Uh, But uh, but the question is, Craig,
1: but you were vaccinated. I was vaccinated. Yeah, it didn't
0: didn't prevent me. Uh, Somehow my wife never got it and she's exposed to a bunch of kids. But the question I have for you is there could be not just, you know, uh, there could be positive uses for gain of function, right? Not just negative or weaponizable.
1: It's important for leading to understanding but you got to do it under the right conditions and the right safety environment and places where you have control. I think there's reasons to potentially do it, but you want to do it the right way. With smallpox, which I get very familiar with, uh, not only sequenced the genome, but once I sequenced it, it was supposed to be uh, destroyed. And I convinced the government that they should not destroy the stores of smallpox. They're still in the... Uh, in the safe at the CDC. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's this little tiny, old-fashioned safe from the 1930s, I think. Because I said it creates a false sense of expectation that we've rid the planet of this pathogen when it could be reproduced very simply. I I went and gave a lecture to President Clinton and his entire cabinet on this. Mm -hmm. This was even early days before we really had all the synthesis technology that we have now. Mm but because the smallpox sequence was so closely related to vaccinia, which we use as a vaccine against smallpox, just doing site-directed mutagenesis, mm-hmm. uh, a diligent team could convert vaccinia into smallpox. Into- now we could just synthesize it from scratch. These are not you know, ubiquitous methods. There is a reason. That in the last 14 years, no other lab in the world has been able uh, to make a new life form like we have. It's it's expensive. It's time consuming. It's not things governments fund, um, except maybe in China. But uh, we also had an expert team of 20 scientists, including three National Academy members and a Nobel laureate, and just some extraordinary people working on all aspects of this. So. Teams like that don't get put together very often in mm-hmm. science, uh, especially spontaneously and, and self-funded. But there are new tools coming. Uh, we're working with a company called Avery that is doing DNA synthesis on computer chips where they can make a different DNA molecule on each pixel on a computer chip. And just by changing the voltage on that pixel, they can do deep production, change the chemistry. And so that could be a 10,000-fold increase in our rate of doing synthesis, Mm -hmm. which means even though it's a trial and error process because all the unknowns, instead of making one molecule at a time and testing it, which was hard and time-consuming, we can maybe make a 1,000 different chromosomes and your screen is for life, which one gives you a living cell. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it will change The experimental rate for doing things, hopefully for the betterment of mankind. But every time there's a breakthrough in technology, you have to worry about the dark side. So, uh, my organization created a robot for assembling uh, DNA. You know, the notion would have been from the digital biological converter, just take in sequence information and make a DNA or protein molecule. And it could do that, but we set it up so that the code could not be changed. You had to order the prerequisite oligos uh, from us. So you had They'd be in a tube. I, I designed 10 different safety devices into it that if somebody tried to modify it, it would shut down the machine. Nobody else is doing this kind right. of stuff in science or even <laughs> okay. thinking about it, but we're, we're trying to think ahead on it. So the devices we're creating for basic science didn't turn into weapons manufacturers.
0: When I look at your career and you already mentioned Isaac Asimov who was, you know, one of my Big inspirations. Obviously, this is part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination that I'm the associate director of, and I should thank Eric Veery, the director, for introducing uh, me, reintroducing me to you after a decade of not mm-hmm. seeing each other. And and that is, of course, you know, our, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's visions and and uh, pronouncements and so forth, that some of which came to be science fact from yep. the realm of science fiction. And I wonder, you know, what seems like science fiction today to you that could be a grand challenge akin to mapping the genome to making synthetic cells what what is the next frontier that seems again like science fiction i mean i we already agree that you know making pathogens and so forth that could be you know that, that sort of could happen now god forbid it does and 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 affects the planet but um but tell me like what in your wildest dreams where where do you go from here what's your, what is a scientific f- science fiction fantasy for for biology uh,
1: briefly before getting yeah. there, the, the same tools that are used for making potentially pathogens are being used for creating the countermeasures. Mm -hmm. So biological warfare wouldn't be a threat if we had a repertoire of antivirals antibiotics vaccines uh, to deal with it and so we created the first using the digital biological inverter uh, the first uh, FDA approved synthetic uh, DNA vaccine and it was made against a flu strain that was discovered in China that looked very uh, pandemic potential. Uh, the Chinese sequenced it and just posted it on the internet. We downloaded and made the virus in, in a week. We were the only source uh, for the CDC and pharma companies of this virus because China wouldn't export the biological molecule. Mm. But it just shows you don't have to. Now you can just send the information right. and recapitulate it. And so we did a test. We set up a device at Novartis. Uh, we sent the sequence to them. Uh, the device made the molecule, and they scaled that up for vaccine production. But everything that happened with the COVID vaccines were really modeled after our early success. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you can make large number of RNA molecules now, and and so our model with that, you know, contributed to all of us getting vaccinated uh, against COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, But to answer your question on on the uh, long distance horizons, the short distance is going to be the potential for totally new industrial revolution Mm -hmm. of, for example, all the microbes we discovered in the ocean, they make chemicals more complex than the best chemists on the planet can make. And so taking those gene pathways, putting them in synthetic organisms, we'll be able to create whole new chemical libraries that will change every type of chemical therapy, but also industrial chemicals for building things, making things. And the notion of this was developed for ideas on making things on Mars instead of sending everything up there, Mm -hmm. because it's very expensive to enough rockets to carry everything up there so if you can get microbes to produce the building materials and the chemicals and the food substances uh, that that would be the future so I I think that's the near-term future Mm -hmm. I proposed because you know while I believe uh, panspermia has happened and is continually happening we've already contaminated the moon We've already contaminated Mars. You can't truly sterilize things here on this planet in a microbial world where there's viruses and microbes in the air, just everywhere you are. You can't eliminate them. And so we've sent microbes to Mars. We've sent uh, you know, people in poop to the moon. We're pumping things out of the space station. So we're we're creating a version of panspermia. Every astronaut that goes up to the space station takes a totally different repertoire of the microbiome of millions of different bacteria with it. Uh, We've sequenced the HEPA filters from the space station. They're loaded with (laughs) so much diversity and so much stuff. it's, It's just stunning. But I've argued that any astronauts going to future planet colonization, we should sterilize them first and give them a synthetic microbiome, so we're not creating a set of new pathogens that would develop uh, in an environment. So those are sort of short term mm-hmm. ideas. Human genome engineering is an inevitable, yeah. We're not ready for it now. We understand one to two percent of the genome at best.
0: When you say understand, what do you mean? Uh,
1: Know what these genes code for, why you have the traits that you have, why I have the traits that I have. Mm You know, We just had this recent discussion here about uh, uh, imagination. I have aphantasia, so I don't see any pictures at all in my mind, I only think in concepts. Mm. The person I was talking to only sees in pictures uh, and puts his world together through pictures. Wow. And we don't even know the simple basis of that because uh, NIH doesn't like to fund behavioral uh studies uh, that lead to social changes on the human brain. So we're just not studying it. You can't understand bases of uh, what's called intelligence, not that you know, but there's multiple Proxies, different types. Right. It's, it's a spectrum mm-hmm. of, of things. So we're at a still a very early stage of understanding. Mm-hmm. One method of survival of our species, is going to be to engineer humans to live in environments that will be inevitable because we're destroying slowly the biosphere that we live in. So maybe it'd be uh, humans that can tolerate higher levels of CO2 mm. or lower levels of oxygen. Higher temperatures. or Higher temperatures. Once we we don't even have a preliminary uh, understanding of the brain. Uh, we think we do, because we understand more than we used to, you know, right. so that seems like huge breakthroughs, but we basically understand nothing. Right. Um, <laughs> and we certainly don't understand the genetic basis uh, of how the brain is hardwired. So in inbred mice and rats, the neurons are in the exact same location the brain plus or minus a few microns. So all that's completely under genetic control. Mm. So we start out being hardwired, but we're also hardwired to be plastic and adaptable. Uh, that may sound like a contraindication, yeah. but you know it, it's, it's part of the design.
0: Anti-fragility. To, yeah.
1: to, to be adaptable and, and our, our brains are plastic to a certain extent and can change Structure and function, but we're not really studying that because we don't know what most of the genes even do yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to increase our knowledge level before I would ever be willing to start engineering uh, the human genome to change humans.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it kind of. It's reminiscent of you know the mapping. We have a periodic table on the wall over here. I don't think I can cap- oh, capture the lanthanides. Yeah. Those, those, those. are oh, the noble gases. There, there it is in the corner over there you know most of these were discovered by number you know in the last you know 100 years or so and of course many of them are important for life but actually not as many as you think right yeah. i think the highest one that's has some uh viability is like um uh there's some amount of copper zinc obviously is important but we uh, i don't think we need cadmium or technetium etc so there's I, a lot I, of waste iron is very important iron is very important but it's, it comes uh, comes yeah. before copper yep. as i mentioned in zinc uh there's a little arsenic and, and people have claimed they found arsenic life uh, that that went away pretty quickly yeah i want to talk about an event i think it happened 1997 you were um Considering leaving this company, HGS, and uh, going off on your own, it, it meant a great sacrifice for you financially, uh, in terms of uh, stock options, things you had vested, important um, uh, investors, and and relationships in the corporate uh, setting. And you talk about you know setting out to see to clear your mind.
1: Yeah, it was not '97. It was actually uh, early 2000s. Oh, is okay. that right? I'd sequenced the genome. I raised a billion dollars cash for 3% of a company with no revenue. I didn't get along. This is Solera? Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Solera had a parent company a Plera that was sort of a holding company. Uh, A a very volatile uh, Cuban CEO who only tolerated me because I was the only one who could sequence the human (laughs) genome. But, and I, I indicated to a board member that once I was Done with that, I was considering going back to my institute because I wanted to keep doing basic research. He panicked. They decided it would, you know, if I left, the stock would crash. So they got the brilliant idea to fire me uh, and the stock crashed even faster. <laughs> um, but, you know, went from the, the intensity of those years. You got an idea from the, the book. I was. On the front page of a newspaper, almost daily yeah. somewhere in the world, the world was watching every move. Uh, one thing I point out there's thousands of reasons perhaps why I should have failed. Okay. But I had the best team of scientists in the world, and they were all motivated to make it work and make history. You know, I was the orchestra, conductor, you know. It's the team that actually did it. Gene Myers led the the algorithm team that wrote the whole new algorithm for assembling 25 million sequences that uh, nobody else thought was even possible. If it hadn't worked, it would have been the biggest flame out in science history, right? I I would have been noted for the fastest death in science uh, from trying to do something too big and too bold. Uh, But it worked, but it was such intensity. It was a 24-hour day thing for two and a half years, building this, then actually sequencing the genome. We didn't know, the White House event was scheduled before the computer stopped the calculation to know whether we had a genome or not. Hey there, it's
0: me again. Are you enjoying this incredible conversation with one of the most brilliant thinkers alive, Craig Bentner? Then I know you'll love what I'm about to offer you. If you go to BrianKeating.com slash list and join my mailing list, you will get the hottest news in the cosmos from consciousness in the brain to life in the universe. And that will make you the star of any cocktail party. All this for free. My weekly Monday magic mailing lists always consider the highlights from all around science and especially from the Into the Impossible podcast with links to transcripts and giveaways. And you may also win a real piece of the early solar system. Maybe the piece that brought life to earth in a panspermic voyage across the cosmos. So do yourself a favor and go to briankeating.com list and join now. That's briankeating.com list. Now back to the episode. Take us back to that, because we're going to get to the voyage of the yeah. sorcerer one, yeah. I believe. But talk about the race. Talk about you, Francis, NIH, public, private partnership, but rivalry yeah. and then winning it.
1: Well, I've gotten lots of attention. I've I've got walls full of awards, including the National Medal of Science from Obama for, for that work uh, that I had to share with Francis Collins. Yeah. But uh, that's it, all right. So, <laughs> you know, I approach things pretty much as a basic science, scientist asking questions. So I was trying to isolate the adrenaline receptor work that started when I was a student here at UCSD. And the standard in science then before genomics was you'd spent 10 or 20 years trying to isolate a protein and characterize it. Lots of Nobel prizes have been given for single protein discoveries. And so when the first discussions in the mid eighties came of the, the idea to sequence the human genome, which everybody thought was outrageous. Um, I love the idea after spending a decade trying to get one protein, the thought of just uh, having all the neurotransmitter receptors and everything to do with cognition in one step, instead of waiting for centuries to do it. It, it. it was just a sexy idea to okay. me. Um, I had the first automated DNA sequencer because I was an intramural NIH. I had more money than God to do whatever I wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, so I actually sequenced the first genes in history with automation. And so I had the only tools to actually do what was being proposed for the human genome. I just got very excited about the idea. And randomness is a key theme in mathematics and cosmology and serendipity it, yeah. it, it it's also a key part of what we did in genomics so shotgun sequencing is you have to have a perfect po- proton distribution of clones and then you randomly select those and sequence it and by doing that you can recapitulate the entire genome can if I it's just... not truly random you mm-hmm. can't do that can i just ask
0: when when you say sequencing so I, i'm envisioning you know this process you know running and 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 sequencing different you know pairs and and um, even even individual yeah individual base pairs et cetera, within the gene right and then well, the,
1: the machine spit out roughly a, a 500 base pair sequence of DNA That's what I was going to ask so, so what
0: was the fundamental yeah. atom of that yeah. so, so okay go on so, so, so yeah
1: it, so we had 25 million Fragments, roughly 500 base pairs long.
0: I say, okay, continue. And yeah. so that's
1: the math mathematical yeah. problem that had to be solved yeah. uh, putting that back together. NIH refused to fund uh, the grant that Ham and I submitted in 19, 1995. This idea we had to sequence the first genome. Yeah. And even after we had it 90 percent done, you know, we took money out of our own bank account at the institute to do it. It was over 90 percent done. I wrote a letter to Francis saying look it's clearly going to work. You know I'm not trying to embarrass NIH. If you fund it now you can still share the credit for doing this. Mm -hmm. And he wrote back I have the letter it's I think it reproduced in my book. book. He stood behind the study section who said this is impossible it won't work. A few months later we announced the first genome in history and, and so That that sort of created, you know, a a tension because I did it outside the realm of this entire enterprise called the Human Genome Project that was starting with a five-year project to sequence E. coli and then yeast, and they were going to progress up to nematode then drosophila. And I kind of threw a monkey wrench into that because (laughs) E. coli had barely been started and, and we did the first one independently. And if you read the science paper in 1995, I had to really fight for this line to be in there, but it, I said that, that I believe this is the method that will be used to sequence the human genome. Right. I was probably the only one on the planet to, who believed that idea. But you know, it comes with maybe the aphantasia, being able to think in concepts. Some things are just totally obvious to me and, and fortunately, a combination of great intuition and that ability to put concepts together, the only time I screw up in life is if I ignore that intuition. It's been right a hundred percent of the time and and I you know just refused to fund these experiments to see it. they had their it was a public works project they were distributing yeah. billions to hundred campuses to yeah. <laughs> labs around the world and uh, you know led Cindy Brenner to joke you know why don't we have prisoners do this you know if it's a forced labor uh, so. thing to do but uh, <laughs> it made sense to solve it mathematically and so we sort of gave up and thought that uh, I, I was gonna have to sit on the sidelines uh, I got a call, in fact, I got several calls, I treated them, I thought they were junk calls and I ignored them, uh, of offering me $300 million to start a company to sequence the human genome. Wow. And it was Applied Biosystems, the company that was, they were making a new capillary sequencer that they thought would fit with my method
0: Do these rely on PCR? And maybe you can explain. Okay. Did you know Kerry when he was? I I knew him well. Okay. What was he like? Uh, Just a side. Can we take a sidebar here? He came up. Well, first, could you explain what PCR is and why it wasn't relevant? You know, to knucklehead. Well, PCR was a
1: method for you know, it's like a Xerox machine for making copies of DNA. It was really a profound technique that changed what people could do in the laboratory. He's he's a genius. But really, a, a crazy mofo, tortured, tortured yeah. genius. <laughs> yeah. Well, a wild genius. He, he's he's yeah. a fun guy. Yeah. I, I enjoy him. And yeah. uh, but uh, he he went off, you know, with bizarre ideas of HIV and, and other things. HIV. In the end, but uh, um, we use, you know, components of PCR to make copies of the strands of DNA that were going to be sequenced. So yeah, mm-hmm. we had rooms full of PCR machines that were part of the process of getting enough molecules of DNA that the automated sequencing machines could read.
0: And Uh, those were the capillary things that applied was going to
1: give you. uh, So, you know, they sent somebody out to see me and said that they were sincere about the $300 million and wanted me to start a company and invited me out to Foster City to look at their new machine, which was actually six breadboard devices spread over six different buildings. And I looked at all of them and I looked at the preliminary data and it was totally clear to me that it was going to work. So we did some calculations of how many machines it would take to do this. And it was funny, we uh, made an order of magnitude uh, error uh, too big. Hmm. and uh, And so it looked like it was gonna take 30,000 machines, and we were sort of saying, well, this still might be still doable. Weird. Brute force. And, and then we then we discovered there was a tenfold error. And I was like, oh, uh, in fact, it was a hundredfold error because we only needed 300 machines. Wow. And even though that was absurd, all of a sudden, by contrast, that seemed so doable. Right. We thought, okay, yeah, <laughs> th- 300 machines and $300 million, right. we, we can do this. So I flew back to my institute, I went to see my friend, the Nobel Laureate, Ham Smith, who had uh, been working with me for 20 years, and I said, look, I looked at the machine. I, I'm certain it's gonna work. If we get 300 of these machines and scale everything up, I think we have a shot, and they're giving us the resources to do it. He goes, I don't think it will work, but I'm going with you. <laughs> that's shot. Yeah. And, and, and that was, that's sorta of how the whole team built of I as soon as I announced it we got a thousand applicants of the best scientists in the world the best mathematician physicists we had to build the third largest civilian computer in the world uh, a whopping one and a half teraflops which cost roughly a hundred million dollars to build Uh, and now it's a few thousand dollar computer it's kind (laughs) kind of cool how how, how fast things change but uh, it, it worked because of the dedicated, incredible team that I built it. I don't think a team's been built like it before. Or after it, Ham's complaint afterwards was, uh, it was such a unique experience. Uh, we did it too quickly because yeah. we sequenced the genome in nine months, and then you know just gave the
0: illusion that it was a simpler th- 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 than things, it was. Right. things
1: ex- ex- exploded, but so the intensity of this uh, w- was so much. When I was fired from there, it was just like going into a a sensory deprivation tank. Hmm. And uh, so I decided I had to do some recouping before deciding what I was gonna do next. So I I got on my boat and uh, sailed down and lived in Tortola for several months working on my boat and thinking of uh, ideas of what I was gonna do, Uh, came back and and started uh three new not-for-profit institutes to, one to do the environmental work uh one to do synthetic biology and one to uh build off the ideas off the human genome mm-hmm. and but uh it it took that you know rebuilding period just you know after anything that intense you know when you're in the press every day hounded every day uh, the whole, it was, you know, it was a very unique experience uh-huh. doing the negotiation uh, with the uh, White House. When I agreed to do that, my colleagues hated me for it. Mm-hmm. Um, you,
0: they were jealous or? No,
1: no, no. Uh, uh, my colleagues at at, at Solero oh. because we were so far ahead. Oh, uh, right. Why give up the, you why know, share the glory? And, and, and scientists like Richard Lerner uh, locally, I had a dinner with him. I told him what I was going to do. He, he got viscerally angry with me. So people wanted me to embarrass NIH and the government for Maybe not embarrass all the horrible them. things that they've done. Right.
0: Uh, well, they've certainly done it. <laughs> But But tell me, do you regret it? If you could go back, would you have done that?
1: N- no, because it's the, the notion was you know, trying to be publicly minded with this. I mean, emotionally, would that have felt great to... Embarrassed Stick the hell out of them that you know uh, we, we did it with a uh, hundred million instead of five billion mm-hmm. and we did it in nine months my ideas got proven right and the team got proven right and uh, I Knew that if I didn't make the compromise To do the announcement at the White House that the following year or two when they eventually finished they would do that and we would be totally left out of it.
0: Right, it's like they say the third guy makes the money from the house. You know, yeah. the first guy loses all the money, the yeah. second guy still loses money, the third guy sells it. it be-
1: so, so it was a negotiated, you know, truce. But it was really based on what Slara was doing. And I would get calls every day, you know, as the computer run stopped yet, and uh, you know, because they were having to schedule all these dignitaries, it was on you know live international TV, right. and know, we didn't have a genome yet. So. Sea change, yeah,
0: I remember that very well. I was at Stanford, but <laughs> it
1: but it got it got down to a game of chicken in the end. Um, because I had to share my speech uh, with the White House um, because it was gonna be. Live television right. from the White House <laughs> um, You're not gonna. and they uh, Tony Blair was gonna be part of it because England was a, such a big part of the genome effort and they sent me Tony Blair's speech and it was just totally insulting totally one-sided praising the Government. public effort right. and attacking this company that you know Greedy, intervened. Right. And, and I called the uh, White House science advisor and said in, unless Tony Blair changes his speech, I'm not coming. Wow! This was the night before the White House <laughs> event. And he said, "You're asking us to change a foreign head of state speech. We can't do that." And I said, "Well, I know you can, and you will, right. uh, if you want me to show up." And they did. Uh, he called me at one o'clock in the morning, and he goes, "I can't send it to you." But I guarantee that you will be very happy uh, with the changes that he's made. In fact, I was. He changed at 180 degrees so that all the scientists in England were totally pissed off with Tony Blair because he was being so nice to me. But, uh, you know, but these games, you know, I'm just shows the intensity of all this stuff.
0: And yeah. in the book, you talk about Francis, and there's, there's a line that really resonated shockingly. So you said something to the effect that he was more interested in the credit than the process or the money or, or anything. And that, that really, that's kind of haunting, you know, to, to think that there are people doing the science and it is truly, you know, about them and about their egos and about their reputations. And, and, you know, you don't have to comment on it if you don't want it, but you did write no, it in the book. But, and, but yeah. as you
1: know, it's that's the history of yeah. science. There, there's been some of the biggest battles even early on here at UCSD yeah. uh, with some of the big areas. You can't work at these levels without having a strong ego. Yeah. And so it's a question what's, what's the driving force? I mean, you want your ideas to be right, um, but we were still trying to do it in a publicly minded fashion. You know, we we're taking private money. We gave the gene- genome away for free uh, uh, to scientists. Uh, I had a chance to embarrass the, the government. My view is they were embarrassing themselves. So we agreed to share the credit even even though it wasn't. Uh, so different scientists are totally motivated by different things. Yeah. We're given disproportionate attention, fame, than you can probably get in most other areas other than being a rock singer or something. Yeah. But uh, when it
0: combines with power, I mean, I had on um, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, who's a good friend of mine, dear, dear person. Of course, you know, in late, you know, 2020, there was uh, articles circulating around that there were, you know, fringe epidemiologists, including him and a Nobel laureate at Stanford, I think Levin. Uh, at Stanford, who had joined in, and we have to, um, you know, basically censor them, or mock them, humiliate them, so that they don't get attention. And one of the ways was to have you know, op eds in the in the mm-hmm. Washington Post, and I found that really despicable. And it's not surprising when I reread your book, Your uh, Life Decoded, that was, you know, kind of a character trait that I have to confess wasn't that unfamiliar from the way he is twenty five years later.
1: Yeah. You can do good science and make good contributions, but your ideas as an individual can be really effed up. Yeah. and my quote friend Watson, it has proven that uh, is James by, Watson by, and he's now been censored by his own institution and fired. You know because, uh, I I think he did make important com- contributions, not necessarily the role and. The model of, of DNA structure, but you know he helped build Cold Spring Harbor and raise money and and do things for it. You know, he he has contributed positively to science, but he, he's one of the biggest racists and sexists on the planet, yeah. and that does a disservice of almost counteracting I- any good that he might have done. Um, and he's not the first one. There's uh, You know, uh, other Nobel laureates that have really gone off on- Oh yeah, Shockley. Shockley, (laughs) uh, you know, was sort of the predecessor there. And just because people are bright in a certain area doesn't mean they have the right ethics and morals. And, you know, when I announced I was going to sequence the human genome, uh, Watson called me Hitler. Uh, And, (laughs) you know, that I was taking over things. But He seemed directly threatened. Yeah. It was very scary. Yeah. Well, because uh, he was constantly afraid from the science they did and the discoveries that it would shut down Congress funding their program if it was going to be done faster and cheaper by industry. And instead, it was a very bizarre situation. And, you know, we had the U.S. government and other governments competing against a startup biotech company in, in the United States. I, I guess the only one who would understand that at all is Elon, and he's done pretty good with his competition against NASA, <laughs> but in part from learning from some of the things we did. China funds its uh, biotech companies, it supports them. Yeah. Uh, only in America would we have the government competing with a startup biotech company by outspending it 50 fold or
0: suppressing contracts yeah yeah. and so it
1: it, it, it's bizarre stuff but i guess that's that's the diversity of of our system the cool thing is i could have an idea like i had it obviously stimulated others uh to give me the resources you know they didn't do it in a selfless fashion they wanted to sell their machines and They made billions selling the machines because I made them work. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's okay, that's capitalism at work. The net effect was I got to do first class science for the public benefit. Uh, and moved it along ten years faster.
0: Yeah, let's get to some fun uh, science questions and actually some voyages. As you said earlier, the voyage, of the, the voyage of the Challenger back in the eighteen yeah. hundreds. Obviously, we we haven't mentioned the probably the most famous biological voyage until the Sorcerer too, which is yeah. the Beagle and biology. Um,
1: well, the Beagle, a, the Beagle was a survey voyage yeah. that had a naturalist on board that just went along to make observations along the way. So right. it wasn't actually a scientific expedition, Right, but it's definitely the most famous uh, <laughs> uh, uh, vessel. And the observations that, that Darwin made are fundamental, was that when you get life in isolated environment, it, it there's evolution of unique genetic characteristics associated because it's an isolated environment. Mm-hmm. We see that today in human populations where there's been inbreeding. Uh, For example, Saudi Arabia was based on uh, 12 Bedouin tribes. All first cousin marriages within the tribes, not even between them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have some of the highest rates of genetic diseases in the world. Second, type 2 diabetes only to the Pima Indians. Why? Because type 2 diabetes was a survival advantage for the Bedouin existence of feast and famine, Right. once they switch to a steady society diet, it becomes a disease. Right. Uh, but it's locked in and with the inbreeding uh, even worse. So uh, Darwin's work totally predicted that in advance and what we're using today. But I had the pleasure of following his exact steps, only I, had a new lens. Uh, I call it the lens of genomics. We could see things by looking at the genetic code after it was sequenced that he couldn't see even if he had good microscopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we discovered uh, 10,000 times the life forms that he discovered, but they were the basis of all the life forms he discovered existing, but that's you know that's what happens that happens in your field. You you get a a new telescope that can see further, new instruments. All of a sudden, the lens of genomics changed the entire world. Microbiology was based on what you could see through a microscope, Mm. or what you could get to grow on an auger plate. Mm -hmm. And if it would grow on an auger plate, it was deemed not to exist. Mm. And that's why, that's what started this expedition they were discovering microbes in the ocean and numbering them one at a time. So SAR-11 was the 11th microbe discovered in the Sargasso Sea, and there was this paper by a physicist in PNAS on, uh, that I read when I was on uh, Sorcerer one recuperating of how little diversity there was of life in the ocean. And as a lifelong sailor, swimmer, surfer, surfer yeah. diver, This just didn't make any sense to me at all because uh, half the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean, the diversity of all the food does. And that's where I got the idea just to use the same method we use for the human genome to try shotgun sequencing the ocean. Mm -hmm. And discovered just from the very first experiment where they had 11 organisms, we discovered 2000 in just the first sequencing experiment and 1.4 million new genes. So we followed the Challenger. We took samples every 200 miles around the globe, Mm -hmm. over 65,000 miles covering most oceans and seas. And uh, uh, even early on discovered more new microbes than there are stars in the universe, which made it easier to recruit physicists and mathematicians because All of a sudden, they said biology was a bigger problem. That's
0: exactly right. uh, (laughs) Um, (laughs) Makes cosmology seem easy. So that voyage began in what year did you start the first voyage? Well, Uh, the the early experiments
1: started in 2003 uh, and then really got going a few years later, where we did a full circumnavigation. But like everything in science, you know, it wasn't as easy as just going out like Darwin did and taking samples and making observations. Darwin didn't have PETA or he he would have been sued multiple times for the experiments you know when he discovered the iguanas he right. couldn't believe that they could breathe underwater so he'd tie stones to them and throw them in the water and see if they'd survive and uh, you don't
0: do that with your graduate students <laughs>
1: well you can do it with graduate students that's okay but um, so we had to get permits we had to work through the State Department with every country where we wanted a sample in their 100-mile border. Uh, It encountered numerous problems. We got arrested twice. Uh, Mm. We got threatened with sinking by the uh, French and the British. Uh, We got uh, boarded by a SWAT team in Australia. Uh, Just asking basic science questions in a world that's fearful of science is not always easy.
0: No, it is not. Um, So is there going to be a a next voyage of Sorcerer 2 or maybe even a Sorcerer 3? What what do we have to look forward to on the oceans? Uh, Well,
1: the good thing is, you know, when it's a, a simple idea, and most good ideas in science are pretty simple ideas, we showed that we could just take a sample from the environment, isolate the microorganisms. For seawater, it's simple. We just had a series of millipore filters that collect things at a very tiny level. So we collect the viruses on one filter, the microbes on the other, the diatoms on another. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just put the filters in the freezer until we could get to a port send them back to the Venture Institute where we shotgun sequenced everything on the filter. It's an idea now. There's been hundreds of mini and major voyages uh, copying this. Mm -hmm. Um, Anybody listening, any kid can take a a little vial, uh, go out to the nearest stream, lake, uh, river, ocean, estuary, take a sample, isolate the microbes, sequence them, and make more discoveries uh, than were made in the 1900s of Mm. new organisms. Because we have that much diversity out there remaining to be discovered.
0: Is there any way that they can actually
1: submit them for analysis unless they- Well, uh, people have been putting more and more of these, the public databases, Mm -hmm. and in fact, it's one of the problems we're trying to solve with the synthetic cell. Most of the genes discovered by us and others are of unknown function. Mm -hmm. So we have now developed this catalog of biology on the planet without knowing the function of the majority of things that have been discovered. Mm. So uh, we're in the infancy of science, not in a mature stage.
0: Well, uh, Craig, this has been phenomenal, and there's much more to come. Uh, But what I love to do now is, um, and they beginning part of the conversation. I know you have a limited time here. I don't wanna miss my audience questions. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna end the main episode of the channel, the conversation with with Craig. And then in order to see part two or the question and answer period, as well as to hear Craig's answers to my final four existential questions on the meaning of life, advice to his former self, the most magical technology ever invented by man and what what, what he expects to uh, give uh, as, as a future sort of legacy for the planet, you'll have to subscribe to my mailing list at list. and if you show me this little meteorite there, you will actually get a chunk of this rock and we have some mm-hmm. talks about panspermia, questions about panspermia in the bonus episode. So to get the bonus episode, go to briankeating.com Slash /list. I will send it out to you as soon as it's ready and you may even win a chunk of space rock. In fact, you're guaranteed to win a chunk of space rock. What I do, Craig is anyone with a .edu email address who it uh, joins my mailing list gets a guaranteed fragment of this 4.5 billion year old piece of space schmutz sent to them along with its chemical assay and we'll even put on some of craig's dna i'm gonna have him slobber over some of the meteorites so tune in uh to uh to part two you'll get the link uh when you join the mailing list and for now craig thank you so much for being a guest on the into the impossible podcast